I mean, the funny thing about not just web development, but I would say web development especially, is that everyone is standing on someone else's shoulders. Because I think the expression is, you know, standing on the the shoulders of giants, right? And, you know, there isn't a single thing that I've done that I haven't been Google searching and reading and researching and seeing what other people have done and to try and make it work. And you just have to figure out kind of where in that pyramid you want to sit in terms of when you're building stuff. This is Commerce Minded, where we go behind the scenes to talk with the people who make e-commerce tick. Brought to you by Foster Commerce. I'm your host, Stephen Callender. Anyone who's done their research on Craft CMS has certainly run into Andrew Welch's work. He's a prolific blogger on all nerdy things craft and DevOps. He's a podcast host at devmode.fm. And he's a developer of important plugins such as SEOmatic and Image Optimize. Other than Pixel and Tonic CEO Brandon Kelly, he's the only person to speak at both all conferences. So bottom line, this guy is important in the craft world, and that means he's important to craft commerce. So we connected on a day I was recovering from a cold, so forgive my raspiness and a little bit of audio issues uh, early on. They do get resolved, but I really think you're going to enjoy this interview and learn some things about the man behind all those important craft tips and techniques. You are in Webster, New York. Correct. Which I'm not familiar with. Um, it's outside of Rochester, which is about hour, hour and a half down the road from Niagara Falls. Okay. I've been there. So upstate. Yeah. Yeah. So how long have you been there? I think I've been here since 1990. So I basically, I ended up going to college at Rochester Institute of Technology. And I was a, a photojournalism major. And really? Yeah. <laughs> Whoa. It's a long story. So, I mean. Well, I've got my cup of tea. I don't know about you. So, <laughs> photojournalism, first of all, like, what were you hoping to do with that? Like, what was your interest in that? It was a mix of, uh, you know, a really good idea with some kind of arrogance mixed in, I guess. So, I had been kind of running my own company since I was 15, and I, I actually started when I was in high school and I was originally designing typefaces of all things. So th- this is like, as my wife says, this is back before fire was invented when, you know, the high quality printer was a, a Apple image writer and it was a dot matrix printer. And so I designed a number of typefaces that were kind of optimized for printing on it. And these are all bitmap typefaces. So, you know, I was sitting in like a little icon editor type thing forever designing these things. And I was doing what they called shareware back then, which is where I just put a notice on it. And I said, Hey, you know, pay for this if you find it useful. But what I noticed was that a decent number of the, the fonts that other people were, were making and distributing, the font got separated from the documentation. And there, there wasn't a great presentation. And I wanted to make sure people knew like, Hey, you know, if you want to pay for this, go for it. And that's kind of how I taught myself programming. I mean, years before I had toyed around with Applesoft Basic, just doing dumb, you know, hello world type stuff. But I uh, was learning Pascal. Uh, So that was done in Lightspeed Pascal. And what I did is I made a wrapper 
for the documentation so that you downloaded this one thing and it opened up and it told you where and how to pay for it. And it gave you this nice documentation that you could read. And then you pressed a button and it would extract the font, right? But the whole goal was to have one package so that the font wasn't just distributed on its own. And there were, I think the most popular one was a font called Palencia. And then I did one called Alderney, which was a, a sans serif font. I also did a font called ProFont, which amazingly enough is still around today in one really? form or another. Yeah. Basically, it's a, a nerd font for programmers. And it, uh, it had slashes through the zeros and some other things that a programmer might want to see. It, it was long ago converted to a vector version, which I have absolutely nothing to do with now. But that's still around. So in any event, I, I found that I enjoyed programming. I kind of fell into it backwards. You know, I was more kind of trying to take this typography thing that I was doing and package it up in kind of a marketing sense. And then I started doing C and then I started doing assembler. And, you know, I was a teenager and it was really exciting for me because I was doing some of these programs and I was getting checks, just like random checks in the mail from just all over the world. And for me as a teenager, it was just really exciting. And this is like, this is pre anyone being super connected on the internet. Um, so it's not like today where you can just fire it up. And if you want to talk to someone from Pakistan, you can, you know, so I, I found it really exciting and I worked really hard at getting better at it. And by the time college kind of rolled around, um, I mean, it's face palm worthy, but true. I, I thought that there was nothing that they could teach me at college <laughs> in terms of programming. Right. And then the other part of it, the kind of the, the good part of it. And by the way, I ended up being utterly, utterly wrong. <laughs> on that front. But the good part of it was that I also kind of was self-aware and realized that I, I wanted to become like a little bit more rounded as a person. And photography was something that had long been an interest of mine. And my family, we traveled a lot to a lot of not like resort travel, but to kind of interesting places all over the world. And I said, hey, you know, what the hell? Let's give this photojournalism thing a shot. So do you remember your first camera? Well, I remember the, the camera that I had for college, which was a Canon, which was the opposite of what everyone else was doing. Like everyone else was getting a Nikon so that they had the interchangeable lenses. And, and this was, again, before fire was invented. So we're talking about we're actually going into dark rooms and we're processing film. All right. This is when digital backs to cameras were just absolutely obscene and the quality was terrible. And I actually, my, my first house that I bought, I actually converted the basement into a black and white dark room that I think I used twice, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, whatever it was fun. So yeah. So that's how I ended up in Rochester. They had one of the best photojournalism programs in the world. And I did that. I was mediocre at best. I think in part because I was still spending a good bit of my time kind of running my business or doing the the programming thing. Also, you know, I was trying to have a social life and, and do some other stuff. So I, I wasn't that great at the photojournalism thing. I still am kind of glad that I did it, though. It exposed me to a lot of people and a lot of things that I never would have been exposed to before. And one of the interesting things is, and, and, and again, this is all when I was doing the software stuff, this is all pre-internet. And I, I managed to get, um, you know, some kind of interesting uh, people sending me checks, like just random and even some like celebrities, 
<laughs> you know, which I thought was really cool. And one of the guys who's one of the celebrities, uh, I was such a jerk to this guy too. It <laughs> makes me feel bad. <laughs> no, I really was. So, I mean, there, there were a number of them, like Carl Sagan sent me money and then Pete Townsend from the who like sent me an autographed copy of his book called like horse's head or something like that. And I remember writing him back. I'm like, Oh yeah, thanks. That's really nice. I love your music. I'm kind of more of a Jim Morrison doors fan. And (laughs) I'm thinking back like what a shit, you know, I mean, it was terrible. But in any event, one of the people that I kind of met through doing this stuff online. And and again, back in the day, we really were kind of like pioneers in a way, because not that many people were online. It just wasn't a thing. But my company, I had a, a forum on AOL, right? And we distributed things on floppy disk. And yeah, I mean, it was crazy. But one of the guys that I met was a guy named Rick Smolin, who is a, uh, he kind of had the pinnacle of what a photojournalism student would ever want in that he was a uh, photographer for National Geographic. So he was living the life, right? I mean, he was traveling the world, he was photographing stuff and you know, he was a really nice guy. I had a, a genuine friendship with him. And he came and gave a talk while I was at college. You know, he was just, he wasn't there for me. He was presenting to the uh, photojournalism, like the entire body. And after that, we went and got some beers and hung out and talked. And he was kind of like, you know, you really kind of have a good thing going with this computer thing. You might just want to keep doing that. <laughs> and it was really good advice because, I mean, I, I don't know if he thought that I was a terrible photojournalist or he thought that computers were the future or he knew that um, his industry was kind of going to hell. But the photojournalism business now, I mean, it's almost dead. <laughs> it really is. Really? Yeah, because, I mean, with the, the rise of digital cameras and smartphones yeah, I guess so, huh? and smartphones that have really good cameras and video and everything else, it's really, really difficult to make money as a photojournalist. Yeah, I guess that's true. And I, yeah, when you think about it, I guess I still think I know nothing about any of that. I just know there's people that I know that they're professional photographers and they're, and especially the ones who tell stories. I mean, I think one of the most obvious ones is like people of New York. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that series or anything. It's like, but it's essentially photojournalism. It takes pictures. I think it was daily. I'll look it up and whatever, but of just people that this guy would run into in New York City and just then tell their story. So it was like a one image within a story kind of in it. Well, and and this guy, Rick, he did some, you know, at the time, really well-known. I don't know how well-known they are still now, but he did a a book called From Alice to Ocean, which was a a story about uh, a woman who lived in Alice Springs, which is like right in the middle of where there is absolutely nothing in Australia. And she wanted to, for whatever, I I don't remember the backstory, but she wanted to take her camels and go on a walkabout and go all the way from Alice Springs to walking all the way to the ocean, to the West coast of Australia. And this is through a desert. So it it would be kind of like, you know, you in Ohio deciding you're going to get up one day and you're going to take some llamas and you're going to walk to California (laughs) is really kind of what it was like. And, and Rick managed to get himself in there as kind of being the embedded guy that was documenting this whole thing. And they had this fun relationship. She absolutely hated him. And (laughs) it's really funny. But that was a pretty well-known book. And then he also did a lot of the uh, Day in the Life books for National Geographic, like A Day in the Life of Vietnam, which is kind of similar to what you're talking about there. But in any event, he kind of convinced me that it was maybe not in my best interest to do that. 
And, you know, kind of away we went from there. Yeah. So what was the name of your company at that point? So originally the name of the company was Mark III Software. And the reason it was called that was because I was 15 years old and I had, I think it was Mac Draw at the time. And I'm not an artist by any means, but I managed to draw something that looked kind of cool. It looked kind of like three obelisks on their side. And I, so it was three marks, right? So being super original, I called it Mark III Software. And this is one of, one of the funniest things. To me, I thought it was hilarious. So I'm this kid. I think I was maybe 16, 17 at the time. And I got this letter from General Electric's corporate attorneys threatening to sue me because apparently they had a Mark III operating system that ran on one of their mainframes. No. Yeah. And I just looked at it and I started laughing. I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm this like kid who's making shareware for the Mac. And you were arrogant. So we've already established that too. Well, I, I definitely was, but primarily in the sphere of computer programming stuff, right? Yeah. And honestly, I think part of the reason is because back then you weren't so connected. So it was very reasonable to think that you were super good because you had no one to compare yourself to, right? You know, I mean, you had no idea. Whereas these days, like you can just open up a GitHub repo and you can look at the code and you're, and you're like, holy crap, I don't know anything, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's my daily life. Yeah, right, right. So that was the original name. And I, I thought it was funny. I was considering telling them, go ahead, sue me or whatever. But I, I really didn't care either. So then I changed the name to Ambrosia Software, uh, which is, I was kind of back into Greek mythology back then. And the gods on Mount Olympus uh, apparently drank nectar and ate this stuff called Ambrosia. So that's where it comes from. And I, I did um, a bunch of games and a bunch of utilities. And I did that for, I mean, I the business was very successful. It was a multi-million dollar business that I ran for almost 30 years. But towards the, the end, I had mentally checked out. I think because I'm someone that I really enjoy learning new things and creating new things. And I had somehow let myself slip into a role where I was mostly managing people and otherwise pretty useless, right? So what I decided to do was to, you know, and it was a little scary because I got a wife and, and two kids and all that stuff. But I decided to kind of go out on my own and, uh, and see if I could do something again from scratch. And I had a, a buddy of mine who's a poker pro that he needed, uh, well, he was having issues with his current WordPress website. And this is when, this is like 2013. And I literally, not even exaggerating, did not even know what a div was in terms of HTML. Like I had no clue, zero concept. But he needed help. And I went in and I had been administering Unix boxes for long enough. I was able to fix his problem. And then he asked me if I could uh, fix his website. And I said no, because it was one of the worst WordPress setups I'd ever seen where the whole point of a CMS is that you can go in and edit the content, right? Well, this, the, the developers had just taken the entire site and put it into one huge PHP file where there was like a switch statement for each page, right? If pages that, right? So if you were trying to change something on an individual page and you made a typo or you did whatever, the entire site broke, right? And I told him, absolutely not. Like, there's no way <laughs> that I'm going to fix this, but I will rebuild it for you from scratch if you want. Like, if you want to start over, I will start over. It was a, a nuke from orbit type of thing. 
And I was just like, ah, how hard could this web thing be? And that was built on Expression Engine. And it still is running today. We're actually, ironically, looking at uh, migrating it to Craft CMS at some point soon. But that sort of started the journey. And, you know, I've been doing a little bit here and there. And now, well, I do tech-based consulting, right? So I do biz dev consulting. I do digital marketing consulting. I do custom development. I do performance optimization. Like I do kind of the gamut of stuff. And I even do developer training for agencies and individual developers and that type of thing. But that's, uh, you know, that's sort of the, the weird road that caused me to end up where I am, where I'm working on a number of Craft 3 plugins and I blog and I do a radio show and I'm super busy and I am really enjoying it because I'm making stuff. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, okay. So when you were at Ambrosia Software and you started that, was that your ideas kind of, were you the coder originally? Yeah. Okay. So you were coding all this stuff originally. Yep. I did everything. Yep. Okay. And then walk me through just even a quick outline of that, of that growth or like what that was like. And then. Yeah. I mean, you know, it grew, I was doing it all through college. I was paying my way through college by doing that stuff on the side while doing the photojournalism. And I ended up hiring my, my roommate to like, just help out with, cause it got uh, overwhelming, just processing all of this stuff. Because we, we had like an old FileMaker Pro database that when checks or money orders or cash, like we got a decent amount of cash in the mail, came in, they all needed to be entered in the database. And then back in the day, well, I, don't, I don't remember. I know I incorporated in 93. And that's why I, when I got an office space and I started hiring people and we got a, a merchant account. And this is another thing that like back in the day, like today, it's nothing. Like you go to Stripe and you sign up and boom, you can take payments, right? But back in the day, the only way to do credit card processing was through your bank. And they had no idea about like online anything. And it took an incredible amount of work to be able to get a merchant account back in the day to be able to handle credit card processing, you know? Wow. And yeah, it was, <laughs> it was ridiculous. But yeah, I mean, we and we got up to 13 people or so, something like that, with a whole bunch of developers and contractors and stuff that I worked with. But now I am at NY Studio 107, and my wife has her master's in computer graphic design, so she's my partner in crime. Okay, okay. Yeah, and I, I do still have someone on the payroll just helping out with accounting and, and that type of thing but much smaller, but I'm really, really enjoying the stuff that I'm doing. And I, I'm really thankful that I found craft because did you ever work with expression engine at all? Yeah. That's where we started too. Yeah. So it was very difficult for me because I, I came from the background of being, you know, a software developer and I hate to say this, but this was absolutely true that back in the day, People that did web development were not considered developers at all by the quote unquote real developers, you know, and I was approaching the doing stuff in expression engine and it frustrated the hell out of me because I knew what I wanted it to do, but expression engines templating language was super limited, you know, then you had parsing order and you had this, that, and the other thing. And I just wanted to kill myself. And I was really happy when Craft came around because you had Twig and you could actually have variables and you could actually have expressions and do stuff. And, you know, and I dove in pretty immediately to making plugins and I had never really like I 
messed around with PHP, but I'd never really done much with it at all before. And my initial stuff was terrible. <laughs> well, because I mean, I didn't know, I didn't know the right way to do things in PHP. Right. Yeah. But I think that's normal. I mean, anytime you approach something new, you're not going to be good at it. You know, it's what I tell my kids all the time. The, the way you get good is by practicing, you know, there's no, there's no magic involved here. Yeah, exactly. So in 2013, you, you have this site WordPress disaster that then you're like, all right, so you find expression engine, you build expression engine and then you enjoyed it enough to like you were working expression and same with us, but you're aware of enough of the problems as were we, did you rely on, I think it was, was it Levi Graham who had like that parse order document that like we constantly referred to. I remember that thing. And I also just remember shaking my head going, this is stupid. yeah we fell in love with stash when stash came out and i know that some people were had a love hate with that so then the idea of twig and what craft can do and allow you to of even setting variables in easy way or any of that stuff yeah you can can fall in love with that yeah i mean you gotta understand for me i'm coming from a background where you know you're writing something in c or assembler like you can literally do anything that you want right and in in this case you were very limited by whatever the templating language provided to you. And for me, that was really frustrating. And that was actually really difficult. Yeah. And I also didn't know anything about HTML or JavaScript or CSS or nothing. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So you've come a long way. Like, obviously, the coding background, you kind of started, you got into it and you had, you're getting checks with that and it keeps you motivated. And then not knowing what a div is in 2013 and then getting to where you are, is that just putting in the hours or is there like some other drive of like, do you just want to see everything be the best? Like what motivates you to to get where you kind of are today where I should even say from my point of view, and I think a lot of people's point of view is like, if you stick around in the craft community long enough, like your name is going to come up pretty soon as having at least a single resource, if not multiple resources of then how to do a craft website properly, you know, of how to build it properly, best practices. I mean, it honestly, I think is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you, even though you're not like commerce specifically, but if we're building a craft commerce, we have to touch your stuff. Like we have to engage with you and and whether it's a podcast that you've done or a plugin that you've written or one of your blogs that you've written, you know, that there's some engagement and again, probably multiple engagements with you of setting best practices. And so I, I see a lot of the work that you've done as kind of defining what some of the current best practices are in craft development. So how have you gotten, like, what is it in your mindset? Cause not everybody gets there, right? People that knew divs way before you, people who you know how all those things. So like, I don't know if you have enough awareness, like back in the day when you had awareness that you needed to be more well-rounded and to maybe take some photographs. What what is that for you? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I'd like to say that there's a grand plan, but there, <laughs> there really isn't. I think that one of the things that I've always kept in mind is that you become the kind of work that you do. And I didn't want to be just coding HTML, right? So I was willing to kind of put the time in to learn how to do what I wanted to be doing, if that makes sense, right? And not everyone has the luxury of being able to do that, right? If you work at an agency yeah. and this site comes in and, you know, it's WordPress and you're using Bootstrap or you're using some theme forest theme, I mean, that's literally what you're using, right? But, you know, on top of me going into it with the mentality of, well, you know, I'm going to try and work on stuff that I want to be doing. 
a lot of it is also, it definitely is putting in the hours. And I don't know if it's compensating, but because I was new to the field, I just felt like I had a lot to learn about it. And I also was probably lucky in that I wasn't burdened by how I had been doing it for the last five or 10 years. Because had I put in five or 10 years doing stuff with jQuery or whatever, I might have felt really invested and not really wanting to relearn or part with that, you know? But I think the other part of it is that I also was just very used to the idea of new technologies and new stuff coming out, you know, developing stuff for the Mac. We went from a 68K processor, black and white screen to, you know, PowerPC and then back to Intel and acquiring uh, Next and going from more of a traditional programming APIs to Cocoa and object-oriented base. And, you know, I guess I was just really used to there always being the next biggest thing. And the other thing is, this is something that I mentally decided to try to do, is when I found the craft Slack, when people were asking questions, I put aside a certain part of my day to try and figure out the answer if I didn't know what it was. And the rationale being twofold, one, to be helpful. And then two, I figured that this was a really good way to learn stuff. So if people would ask a question, if I knew the answer, I would tell them. And if I didn't know the answer, I would, uh, you know, assuming I was within that allotted block of time that I had given myself, I would research it and figure it out. And I think that really helped me try to get up to speed in a, a wide variety of things. And then just I've always been interested in technology. So when something new and shiny comes out, like I want to check it out. And I want to see, you know, how this is going to help me. And is this a good idea? Is this useful? And that has caused my plunge into, you know, a whole bunch of different things in terms of web performance and SEO and in terms of uh, front end frameworks like Vue and service workers and DevOps stuff. And, you know, just a huge kind of variety of things. Yeah, all of it, all of it. Yeah. I mean, on that point of kind of going in and trying to help people and then learning from them. I mean, I'll, so if anybody's listening in there, they want to get better at stuff. I can also, you know, affirm that because that's what happened with me with expression engine, you know? So I have the same idea from you is even though I knew what a div was my first website, somebody got, gave me, it's kind of really do for somewhat of a commercial business. I destroyed it. You know, it was all tables, you know, and everything. And like, they handed it to me to save them some money. And I think I'm, I'm not sure that really panned out well. <laughs> but during the expression engine days, whenever I was getting really more focused, I'm like, okay, this is what I'm doing now. That was my goal was to go into the expression engine stack exchange and answer as many questions and kind of learn from that and kind of see best practices. And it paid off immensely. Yeah, for sure. Because if you're trying to explain something to someone else, you have to really understand it. Yeah. It kind of forces you to learn that. And in a similar way, that's why I started doing the blogging that I was doing. Well, it, it was a couple of things. So one was, again, you know, I'm a newcomer to this industry. You have people that are in here that are well-known, that have had deep relationships. So I figured that if I was blogging about stuff, it would be kind of showing that, hey, you know, this guy knows what he's doing, right? And then also it causes me to have to really go in depth to learn the thing, right? Because to, to be able to blog about it, you got to do it. And you, it's not just do it. You have to really go deeply into it to explain why, you know, you can't just gloss over it and say, well, this just works, you know? <laughs> One of the things I, I wanted to even kind of talk to you a little bit 
about and more in depth because for, well, for everyone, performance matters, but for e-commerce sites and especially e-commerce sites where it's not just hobby, you know, but people are really trying to, this is an essential business, that performance matters even more so. Yeah, it's ridiculous. What was that, that well-cited Walmart study? where they, every time they reduced the load time by one second, they made a million extra dollars or something crazy like that. Yeah. This is insane. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Reports like that. So, I mean, there's all sorts of stats that I have kind of even just listed around, but like similar things. Like I think, I forget where it was reported, but like one of the things I remember was like, if Google had calculated that if it slows down its search results by just like four tenths of a second, for them, they'll lose like about I was like eight million searches per day, and something like Amazon has also calculated that like you know if their page speed will slow down just like one second, it could cost them possibly like one point six billion yeah each year. So like, and it, it sounds crazy, but it makes sense when you when you think about the fact that on any reasonable site these days, the the majority of your traffic is mobile. And people are using these mobile devices on, you know, this is where the network becomes a variable, right? Where you're used to your internet is pretty constant for the most part when you're on a desktop machine. Then when you're on mobile, like it can be either really good or really crappy or it can not exist at all. And they're also smaller devices with less CPU. And then you add in the fact that people are using these things like they're in a cab or they're, you know, walking to the bathroom in a restaurant and they, they just are not going to spend that extra time. Yeah. It's just not going to happen. So it, it matters a whole lot. And it, it resonates really well with me because one of the things I get real pleasure out of is writing some code that works well or performs well. And I guess it's not a big surprise because, I mean, I used to write stuff in assembly code which is literally like the opcodes that the processor runs. And the only real reason why you would do that, even, even then, back in the day, the only reason you would do it is when you needed to optimize the hell out of something. And I remember the game Maelstrom, I think, was one of the, the first times where I had done large-scale assembly code. And it was the kind of thing where the performance mattered to the point where it just wouldn't work on the computers at the time, unless it was hand-tuned in that way. And it's kind of interesting that, I mean, yes, mobile devices are getting more and more powerful, but they also have inherently scaled back the amount of horsepower that you can expect people to have. So we're kind of regressing back to a, hey, you know, performance actually really makes a huge, huge difference. Yeah. And I think you saw it too. So there's a, a new... A medium post by Addy. Yeah, Addy Asmani, yep. Called the the cost of JavaScript. Right. In the specific way that just JavaScript itself, not even taking anything else, you know, into context necessarily, but like Addy, by the way, has my dream job. Oh yeah? Not because he works at Google, but because he gets paid to do deep dives into all these areas and then write about them. Oh man. <laughs> you know? I mean, I know he does more than that as well, and he's a super Super nice guy. But, you know, he did one earlier on image optimization and performance that is, is, you know, so he's he's being commissioned to write these huge, exhaustive, super helpful resources, which is sounds like a hell of a lot of fun to me because he he spends a lot of time experimenting and benchmarking and doing all that kind of stuff that I that I do on the projects that I work on, too. 
well, it's kind of like a web developer dark room, you know, like you get to get in there and like isolate yourself a bit and kind of get into like the details of it to see how it all works. He's like, if you ever watched the Batman movies, he's like the researcher that just goes in the back and just builds cool stuff <laughs> and he gets paid for it, you know? <laughs> which is, I mean, it's fantastic. Yeah. But yeah, performance, I, I think, is a massive topic. And the interesting thing to me is that, again, coming from being an application developer, I'm used to all this stuff, but I see a lot of people that are web developers that they, a lot of them like started as designers, learned some HTML, and then learned some JavaScript just because they you know needed to animate this, that, or the other thing. And then they're looking around in 2018 and they're going, what the hell happened? <laughs> you know, yeah. because, and what has literally happened is that web development has changed into being bespoke, small scale application design. And the amount of tooling that you need to do kind of the modern stuff is just incredible. And I feel for people that have kind of fallen backwards into it because I talk to a lot of the people every day. They're like, yeah, I don't know what the hell is going on, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, we can get into the weeds even a little bit more, but I think even Craft 3's venture into Composer has, I think, brought out that tension a bit for some people who who don't want to touch command line or don't want to touch, you know, anything in that direction. Well, let's talk about Composer. How do you feel about Composer, you personally? I feel like I can maneuver it. I'm not an expert whatsoever, but I'm not afraid of it. So I know I know how to run it. I know when it's a problem. If I'm like, oh, I got to go do this one. I live in command line. I don't use GUIs, you know, so like even for Git and whatever, I'm in command line. Yeah, I mean, the funny thing for me is that I do a ton of command line work and do a ton of DevOps stuff. But for Git stuff, I use Tower. Like I almost never, almost never do anything in the, the CLI for Git. But I think that's a case of just, you know, use whatever tool works for you. Yeah. Getting back to Composer. So I think part of it is an irrational fear because think about Pixel and Tonic. So what they needed was some way to download Craft itself, download plugins and keep everything up to date and, and handle all that stuff. And they could write their own, which they did. But it would be a ton of work to be able to write something that would be able to handle all of the plugins and all of their dependencies. And, you know, I mean, they essentially would be rewriting Composer. Yeah. So them adopting Composer, I think, makes complete sense. Yeah. But the thing where I think it's slightly irrational is, for the most part, unless something goes wrong, you can be a craft developer and craft three and you can just forget that Composer even exists, right? You can download a zip file. You can check the entire vendor directory into your Git repo. Or, you know, if you're still manually updating stuff, you can do it that way. And everything still works. And the, the reason it works is they actually use a PHP version of Composer under the hood to do all this stuff. So you don't need to use the CLI to use Composer at all. I do think that it makes things a whole heck of a lot easier if you're going to. And I can understand some of the angst, but I mean, most developers at this point are at least somewhat familiar with using a package management tool, you know, whether it's uh, Bower, um, which is now being decommissioned, or it's uh, NPM, 
and that really composer is the PHP version of NPM. I mean, that's literally what it is. I think the fear, cause I, I do think I have it, some of it, you know, because I wouldn't consider myself like a developer either. You know, like I didn't come in as, you know, as a developer into this world. But no one gives you a badge saying, Hey, you're a developer. <laughs> you know? well, some, people, some people have diplomas. Um, yeah. so, but you know what I mean? Like, like for me, like it's not that, backend code is where I live, you know? So there's a bit of black box to it. Mm -hmm. It's a composer of like, okay, when it breaks, well, then like now what, Right. you know? And so I think that's part of the fear is like, even for me, when I do NPM and I install something and I see something about, oh, this is deprecated. I kind of like, oh, well, I hope it works. Right. <laughs> you just, <laughs> you just let it scroll by and be like, all right, let's see what happens. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but I think that's normal, <laughs> you know? I think that's totally normal, especially in the NPM world. You just get this massive dependency tree and you just hope that it works. Yeah, you're like, please, please. But a lot of people don't get the big payoff, right? So, I mean, I, I talk to developers that are still just, they're like, ah, well, you know, why am I going to use a package.json, right? And the big payoff for doing that is when you want to update stuff, you can just do, you know, you can do a yarn upgrade right? Or if you're using Yarn or NPM or whatever, and it will, it will go down and download all the updates to all this stuff, right? And then you don't have to go manually find it, manually download it, and it just automates things. But I, I think this kind of gets back to what we're talking about before, where the scope of work that you're expected to do to build a modern website these days is out of control, right? And the way that you handle or the way that people have handled complexity, whether it's web development or building cars, is that you stop building every single piece by hand and you pick the pieces that you want from various suppliers and you put them together. You'll find, you know, cars built by General Motors, like the engine comes from BMW, the drivetrain comes, you know what I mean? It comes from all over the place. Um, and it's the same thing with web development. And in order to be able to manage that, you, you need some kind of tooling for it to work. I mean, it's just, that's just the bottom line. And that's what Composer is kind of aiming to solve. And there have been some teething pains, but I think that Pixel and Tonic, they're going to make it so that if you just really don't want to deal with Composer, you just never have to, right? Unless something goes wrong. And if something goes wrong, then they're going to help you out. But I do, you know, and this is kind of like my bigger thought process on something though, or on the whole web development thing. I think that, and it's already happened, but I think it's going to happen more and more is that if you have designer developers, they're mostly going to either be working with a team of other developers, or they're going to be building sites using a platform. You know, maybe they could even use Medium. They could use Webflow. They could use uh, Wix, you know, one of these tools that helps you design and build stuff. And the reason that they're going to be doing that is because the complexity of doing it manually is just ridiculous. So if they don't want to learn it, then, you know, you're going to be using some kind of a tool to do all this stuff for you. And then on the other side of things, the, the people who are making bespoke websites using craft, you're just going to have to up your game in terms of what you use and what you adopt. It's just the way the industry is going. I mean, a lot of the bigger agencies, you know, what they're looking for is people with, you know, front end like React or Vue or, or that type of experience. 
Yeah. Let's let's dive in even to some like e-commerce thoughts and stuff, or even craft commerce specifically. So, so you're talking to a prospect, right? And they want to build out in commerce. And is there a point for you that when you're looking at a project of how you judge whether craft and let's again even specifically craft commerce would be the fit for them versus other platforms? Again, that platform thing of like shopify plus or even big commerce i'm not sure how how familiar you are even with those worlds but like in the sense of even not thinking about the other platforms i guess you could just even think about craft commerce itself like is this sufficient enough for craft commerce what's your mentality of thinking through that so really it's budget (laughs) (laughs) well honestly it is because if they have the budget you can absolutely do it in craft and craft commerce whether that means that you're doing a whole lot of twig templating or whether that means you're going to have to write custom plugins or custom adjusters or this, that, or the other thing, you can do it all. So it really depends on the client's budget and how bespoke of a website that they need. You know, if if they want something truly custom, like you can absolutely do it, but it's more work just like building anything custom is, you know, if you wanted to go out and buy a motorcycle, you can buy one, but if you want a custom built exactly to your, specifications, it's going to cost a lot more. Yeah. One of the things that we see, because I think people are, are starting to get turned on to craft and craft commerce. And so when we have some conversations with prospect clients, like whether there's a lead person in the company who's trying to like convince everyone that, hey, this is the direction we should go. But in the early stage of where craft commerce is still, right? So that there aren't tons of shipping plugins or there aren't tons of like we're working on a reporting plugin which hopefully by the time this is even released we'll have it released but there's not really that when you compare to other tools and what they're used to even like attaching to quickbooks or also a whole gamut of there's a whole world of of apps and plugins and other platforms that true they have a business need to where they're hitting the roadblocks in shopify or in big commerce or they're hitting the the ongoing budget problems of magento whatever the case is there, they're obviously running into some problems. But when they look at craft commerce at this point, they see a a whole new set of problems of like, it's lacking an ecosystem. Sure. Well, I think it's like anything else. I mean, back in the day when you, and I, I did not adopt craft at the early stages. Like I I didn't even start looking at it until two point something came out. Yeah. It's 2.5 for us. I think I, I was a little bit earlier than that. But like, if you looked at the initial craft, I mean, you would say the same thing, right? So I think then it depends on, you know, do I have confidence in these people? Are they building a good platform? And I think that they are in terms of what they're building. But I am definitely cognizant that use the right tool for the right job. If the client doesn't have the budget or if they're feeling insecure because they, they've never heard of this thing, then maybe it's not the right fit for them. Yeah. And it's funny that you mentioned Magento because one of the kind of big projects that I have looming is a Magento REST API emulation layer for craft commerce. <laughs> yeah. So actually, so so last episode I talked to Jonathan Melville and we we Did he mention that? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was I was gonna bring it up because the fact that y'all are kind of back to back in this conversation. So it's really funny that Yeah, Jonathan's awesome, by the way. Shout out to Jonathan. Yeah, man. So he 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 mentioned Actually, so, and this is how he put it. He phrased it to me of like, I asked him specifically, I said, all right, hey, man, I'm going to be talking to Andrew, like, and he told me about the e-commerce project that y'all are going to be working on. And so um, I said, well, well, what's one of the the values that, that Andrew is going to bring to the project? Um, so, so here's a shout out to you. My shining personality. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So he was like, well, he, you know, the, the ability to think through very difficult problems and the skill to in- implement elegance, he added that in, uh, in effective solutions to those problems. And we'll have, and then he was like, we're going to have more than a few problems, uh, difficult problems to solve. Oh yeah. And for example, like integrating the client's existing point of sale system says your, your vendor already has an adapter for Magento. So we'll be writing a plugin that makes commerce emulate Magento to that adapter, allowing for the seamless integration. So basically their POS will think it's talking to Magento, but it will be talking to commerce. Correct. And so that's what you will be doing over the next, what is that, next couple of weeks, months? Yeah. And, and this was um, just coming up with the right solution was a good bit of work. And and like anything else, I don't know for a fact that it's a right solution <laughs> until we do it, right? But I'm pretty sure it is. So we, we did a whole, we even did some on-sites there where we went down to try and figure it out. And it was a, a very typical scenario where, it's a client that isn't that tech savvy and they have a bunch of contractors that have come and go and like no one knew. No one knew how all this stuff worked. So we had to kind of do what we could to figure it out. And then based on that, figure out the right way to do it. So they have a online store and they also have a number of physical stores and they're all tied together via a point of sale system called CounterPoint, uh, which is from NCR. And this runs in their... Windows servers in their warehouse or, or something like that. And then there's an integration for CounterPoint that lets it talk to Magento. And their current e-commerce site is on Magento. And it's it's at the point where they, they've long not liked it um, and things are breaking and things are just not working. And so we're going to be redoing that. And the real issue here is that kind of what you were saying before, the vendor for CounterPoint like has no idea what craft commerce is. They said they'd never even heard of it. So commissioning them to go out and make a custom counterpoint integration to have it talk to craft CMS probably would be horrible, right? Because they don't have experience with craft. They don't know what it is. And I'm sure it would be a significant amount of work. So we said, Hey, you know, you're already talking to their Magento server via rest. Why don't we just emulate that? I mean, REST is a CRUD API. You just have to make sure you get input and do the mappings. And then on their end, their CounterPoint integration is just going to think it's talking to Magento. And it's going to be able to get product updates and push orders back and forth and do all that kind of fun stuff. That's the pipe dream. Now, in like six months, you can have a spec on <laughs> and we'll tell you how it actually... I'm like, so why are you drinking? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what happened? You know, how come you're homeless now? <laughs> but that's the kind of the big picture thing that I realized a while ago is like, I, I've, I've learned a whole bunch of different languages. And at some point, you learn enough about how computer languages in general work so that picking up a new language is not really that big of a deal. You know, it's kind of like an analogy I make is that, you know, you're living in Ohio, you know how to drive. If I took you and I plopped you in the, in the middle of downtown Tokyo, you still know how to drive, but you're going to, it's going to take you a little while to figure out the lay of the land, but you'll get it. And it's that way with languages. And I, I think it's also that way with figuring out problems like this, you know, maybe to answer your earlier question, maybe that's what it really is. What really kind of drives me is I really like problem solving. I can't stand doing work that I already know how to do and can just kind of walk through the motions doing it. I really enjoy challenges, even though, you know, I want to put my head through the monitor sometimes, but in the end, I really, I really enjoy them. 
I guess when I'm thinking through like your ongoing work and then, then what to expect of you. So now, so that's where my mind's going is like, okay, what, what else is coming out of Andrew Welch, you know, over the next year and stuff like what are the different problems like is it just per project whenever you dive into a project like in this project maybe you'll run into a problem you'll realize oh this is something that can probably be solved for a lot of other people let me write about it or write a plugin about it is that what happens is you have a project that then exposes you to something and then you kind of dive deep into that one aspect of that project or is that how you get introduced or do you have a or do you have a map of like oh i know i want to talk i want to figure this thing out next. No, you're right. A lot of it comes from that where for a particular client or sometimes even for myself, you know, if I just want to learn or do something, there's a a problem that I'm faced with. And I, I do try to think about it from the point of view of not how do I solve this problem right here, but how do I solve it in a more generalized way so that I can reuse it on future projects. As a, for instance, I've spent I don't even want to tell you how much time <laughs> working on a Webpack 4 setup for the Craft 3 port of my Retor plugin. So Retor is a plugin that it lets you redirect incoming 404s to appropriate places. And it uh, was really, really popular uh, for Craft 2. And it's one of the few plugins that I have not ported yet. So I'm, I'm deep in the middle of that, but I've spent like literally a week just working on the plugin infrastructure for using Webpack so that I can do fun stuff like I can use Tailwind CSS in the admin CP with Purge CSS so that it's uh, not taking up much space. And I can do async bundle loading and I can do dynamic code splitting and I can do all this crazy stuff. And if you really stood back and said, is this really necessary? <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> you're, you're making a, a freaking plugin. Like, why not just plop? the JS and the CSS in there, I guess I'm just thinking about it from a bigger picture point of view that I am then going to use this framework for all the other plugins that I make. And I'm probably going to backport it to SEOmatic for Craft 3 and Image Optimize for Craft 3 and some of the other ones. And it's solving the problem. You just made all the plugin developers' heads just explode because now we're all thinking, oh, damn it, now we've got to kind of have to follow this guy. He's going to have this super optimized plugins and we're going to have to do it too. (laughs) Well, okay. They don't have to do it, right? I mean, this is just something that I wanted to see if I could do it. And I also thought it would make my life easier. And actually, they're probably going to be really happy because they can just look at the code and be like, oh, (laughs) that's how you do it, right? Because a lot of problems in programming, when they're done, they're really simple. You're like, oh, okay, that's the right way to do it. The hard part is getting there. The hard part is figuring out the right way to get there. So I think it's something that other plugin developers probably will be like, oh, sweet. You know, I can just kind of do it this way. Yeah. Uh, Not to say that they all need to, because again, this is kind of overkill for this, but this also bleeds over into the front end work that I do, that everything that I'm doing in here is something that we've wanted a really nice unified solution for doing it on the front end. Like I did a big package.json and gulp blog post a while ago. And I've been looking at doing something like that, but for Webpack. And the reason I want to use Webpack is that I'm using frameworks like Vue and other kind of more modern-ish things more and more. And using Webpack just makes a whole lot of things a whole lot easier. But if you thought Composer was daunting, (laughs) like going in and writing your own custom Webpack stuff is uh, definitely a rabbit hole for sure. 
And that's why a lot of people are just using Laravel Mix, which is a layer on top of Webpack that kind of gives them, you know, 90% of, of what they want without having to do a whole lot of work. You know, or they're using some other kind of layer, like they're using the the Vue CLI, which abstracts away and takes care of a, a lot of this stuff for you. Again, I enjoy the challenge and I enjoy building something that is more than this one specific thing. And, and maybe that comes from the application programming background where the cost of building something is kind of high. So you want to make sure that you're going to be able to leverage it in the future. And so that's how I approach this stuff. Like, you know, for instance, I have it working in the, the, the Webpack build for my plugin where it spits out both an ES5, like an old school JavaScript bundle, something that will run on any browser. And then it also spits out an ES6 plus bundle, right? So that for modern browsers that don't need any of that garbage, they don't need the polyfills, they don't need the code, you know, transpiled into kind of dumbed down JavaScript, that they can then load that. And you end up saving, I think on, on average, it's like 30 or 40% of the bundle size by doing it that way. And there's a guy that uh, came up with a, a really clever way to introduce this into browsers where you just do a uh, script tag and you say mo- uh, type equals module. And for older browsers that don't understand it, they will just skip that over. And they the source for that is going to be the the modern bundle, right? And then you do another script tag. You do script and then no module. And then you point that to the old transpiled one. And then the browsers just do the right thing in terms of loading the appropriate bundle. And is this necessary in a plugin in Craft CMS in the, the back end? Absolutely not. But is it something that I want to be using on all the front end builds that I'm doing? I mean, hell yeah especially when we're talking about performance, like JavaScript is a big part of it. Why are we transpiling all this JavaScript when 90% of the people visiting our site are going to be able to use a modern bundle? And it'll be much smaller uh, by doing it that way as well. One of the things I've enjoyed about kind of even just chatting with you in this is, is, is definitely hearing the way you think and hearing how you approach these things. And, and I think one of the, so people that are building in commerce even if, <laughs> if there are merchants, people who have businesses who have stuck with us through this kind of more on the dev side of, of kind of this understanding of like building and craft, for example, you get minds like Andrews, you get mine. There's other people who have these minds of like trying to really offer extremely optimized, very beneficial um, solutions that are, to use Jonathan's words, that are elegant, you know, that we're we try to find these solutions to that'll make their businesses easier and also successful in the e-commerce side of like looking at performance and just people who, you know, are really just trying to make things better and, and better in the coding world is efficient and faster. I'm excited to kind of see the stuff that you continue to come up with and uh, the things that you work on. I definitely want to see that Magento piece i'd love a, a sneak peek at that whenever you get through that kind of see what's I happening i gotta actually do it first <laughs> i know i know well it's gonna happen so so i'm already putting dibs in the, to get a look at it but i mean the funny thing about not just web development but i would say web development especially is that everyone is standing on someone else's shoulders because i think the expression is you know standing on the the shoulders of giants right and you know there isn't a single thing that i've done that ha- i haven't 
been Google searching and reading and researching and seeing what other people have done and to try and make it work. And you just have to figure out kind of where in that pyramid you want to sit in terms of when you're building stuff. But no, I mean, one of the important things about performance is that it's way easier if you integrate it into your workflow from day one. One of the hard things to do, and this is what most developers do, is they build a project and it's just a, you know, it's a claw just to get it to the finish line um, so that it's ready for the client. And then they look at the performance characteristics of it and they realize that it would be a ton of work to go back and undo it. And I've done this many, many times where I go in and I do a performance audit and it requires like gutting it and rewriting how certain things were done. And if you start out from the beginning with a, a stack of, you know, I'm building the, a performance site from the start and you have performance testing built into, you know, something that you do while the site is in development, it ends up being taking a whole lot less time and you end up with a, with a much better product in the end. I think it's a great point and everybody should heed to that, man. It's been great chatting with you and it's been great hanging out with you in Berlin. Yeah, we had a great time. We had a phenomenal time. <laughs> so if anybody's interested in hiring Andrew for whether you're an agency and you and you need some help and optimizing some stuff and getting some things figured out, um, I'm sure you could definitely reach out to him. You can find him at nystudio107.com. You can find him on uh, Craft Slack. Just hit him up. So Andrew, thanks for joining me. It's clear Andrew is a guy who enjoys getting lost in an interesting challenge, looking for that best solution from his photography darkroom days to today. And it's all the same mindset and it's awesome. We benefit from it. So I'm really thankful that we have him in the craft and commerce worlds and keep us moving forward and give us some awesome solutions to apply to our own client sites. And what's great is our next guest on the show is both the client and developer. We'll be chatting with Jeremy Dowder, who is a prolific writer in his own industry of digital imaging products and printing. And he built his company's website by himself, which is definitely a feat in itself because it is one of the largest craft commerce sites. And he has done some amazing things through plugins. So excited to chat with him, learn some business skills from him as well. Uh, so stick around. In two weeks, we'll be back with Jeremy Dowder. Jeremy Dowder.